are there no prisons? Oh, yes, sir. Plenty of prisons. And the Union workhouses? Are they still in operation? They are. I wish I could say they were not. This is Rish Outfield, and you're listening to the Rish Out cast. And uh, I'm not sure if you can tell, but I have been sick lately, and it has affected my voice, and that has occasioned me to do this episode now. This is my holiday episode of the Rish Outcast. I think I've managed to do it every year, at least every year since I started doing this regularly. But it always sneaks up on you, doesn't it? Comes, I almost said comes earlier and earlier every year, but no, just faster every year. Unfortunately, uh, toward the very beginning of December, I got sick. Everyone got sick in my household. We all got a cough the flu, maybe a summer cold. No, not a summer cold. Something. And uh, it did a number on my voice to the point where for a couple of days, I sounded like Mercedes McCambridge in The Exorcist and uh, I didn't even have to try. Unfortunately, that meant that the uh, story that I was going to present for Christmas was either not going to make it in time or I'd have to diabolically split it in two and present the section that I had already recorded before I got sick and then record the second section separately later after my voice recovered. So so the story that I'm going to share with you today is called There'll Be Scary Ghost Stories. I believe it's the last story I wrote in the Dead and Breakfast series, which was a series that in 2019 and 2020, I just went whole hog into. I probably wrote five or six stories in that series and started another one. I think I wrote a novel. Uh, It just, it became something that captured my imagination. I think I wrote another one in 2020. One another one in 2022, or maybe this was the second one I wrote in 2021. Uh, Yeah, that feels right, that this was a story I wrote Christmas time of 2021. Then I, you know, I I, I put the Dead and Breakfast series on hold and started on other projects. I started doing a bunch of Laura and the Witch stories. We'll see what I end up doing after that. So, If you recall, the Dead and Breakfast stories are a series of short stories that take place at the Noble Oaks Bed and Breakfast in Vernon, Idaho, where one night a year, and sometimes more, the place is haunted. Ghosts show up and uh, haunt, I guess, for lack of a better word, the, the people who are staying there and the employees. And I had intended to write a series of stories about guests who come to stay at Noble Oaks and experience these supernatural activities. But very quickly, I became more interested in the staff that worked there and what their lives were like and what their brushes with the supernatural were like. And so this is a perfect example of that because it takes place not in July when the ghosts come round, but in December. As you're probably aware, there's that line in the most wonderful time of the year where the singer says there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories. And so that brings us to this story. I don't believe you need to have heard any of the other stories in the series to follow it, but it may take a miracle for you to enjoy There'll be scary ghost stories, written and narrated by Rish Outfield. Winters in central Idaho can be bitterly cold, but they can also be white and beautiful. Though the winters there are long, smack dab in the middle 
is the promise of Christmas serving as a bright spot to focus on for the devout and the non-religious both. Most of the employees of the Noble Oaks Bed and Breakfast were of the latter persuasion, though there were a couple of devout Catholics among the housekeeping staff, and the cook, who had put in her notice the first week of December, had been a Mormon Relief Society leader. Michelle Lovett was not at all religious, but she was quite fond of Christmas anyway, remembering good times in her childhood that gave her at least a modicum of comfort, now that she was a thirty-something who lived alone, without even her dog Arthur to keep her company any more. The bed and breakfast had hired a new day clerk, Lucille Lolly Thane, who was still learning all the mostly boring tasks of manning the reception desk all day, and had been working beside Michelle every day this week. Lolly was short-haired, green-eyed, and cherubic, uh, if that meant cute and round, and asked a lot of questions, sometimes more than once. Is this place open on Christmas Day? Lolly asked, while Michelle was showing her how to change the filter in the coffee maker. Nope, closed on Christmas and Boxing Day. But except for Easter Sunday and Father's Day for some reason, Connie keeps it open on all the other holidays. Lolly squinted one of her eyes. Is Boxing Day really a thing? Is it that popular around here? Is what that popular? Michelle asked. But even as she said it, she realized what the new girl must have been referring to. Boxing, Lolly said with little embarrassment. Michelle was tempted to tell an amusing lie about Mike Tyson having been born right there in Vernon, so he was a local hero, despite being black and an ex-con. But she was sure Lolly wouldn't know who he was, and couldn't think of the names of any other boxers. Instead, she said, It's the day after Christmas. They call it Boxing Day because so many get in fights around the holidays. Ah, Lolly said, not getting that it had been a joke, and that probably meant that it wasn't particularly funny. And do you guys do stuff for Christmas, then? You guys? Does the motel do something for Christmas, like a work party or something? Michelle nodded, closing the lid on the coffee machine, thinking about it. You know, I've never been to one if there is. Mrs. Bice isn't much for community, or warm get-togethers. Oh, that's too bad. I'd like the chance to kiss someone under the mistletoe. Michelle, for the briefest of moments, thought that Lolly might be talking about her. She gave off a fringy, anti-establishment vibe, and had one of those haircuts where the sides of her head were shaved, despite her longish blonde hair in the back. Michelle didn't know what to think about that, since she had never really had any lesbianic inclinations. Well, I could float the idea by Connie, Michelle said who got along with the old woman better than any of the other employees. She'll probably say no, but we could put up some mistletoe anyway. Cool, Lolly said. Is there, uh, someone in particular you'd like to get under the mistletoe if we hang some up? There weren't all that many co-workers Lolly could be thinking of. Natalie was attractive enough to turn a Disney princess into Rachel Maddow, but their paths probably hadn't crossed. Kissing Connie Bice would be like toad-licking, without the hallucinogenic properties. There was the janitor, who was probably seventy, and Lolly had met Mason on Tuesday when she came in for work, but it probably wasn't him. He wasn't the kind of man some girls think of as handsome, as some old song went. They had also hired another guy to be a clerk, with a name even sillier than Lolly, who wouldn't start until the new year somebody who could alternate between working days and nights, but there was no way she had met Rafferty. Uh-huh, the girl said, looking at the carpet for a moment. She appeared about fifteen when she did it, and again Michelle's memory went back to when she was a girl, and more innocent and excited about life. Then Lolly grinned. There's that housekeeper, Alana, you know? Anyway, she gave me the eye yesterday. Alona was also new, and spoke about a hundred words of English. But she wasn't unattractive, and had both of her nostrils pierced, so Michelle supposed it could work. And later that day, she kept thinking about it, and how much she wanted to have a little mixer with the people she worked with, despite not being particularly close to most of them. 
Maybe she just needed more social interaction in her life, or maybe she just wanted to see if Lolly and Alana hit it off. On Friday, at the end of Michelle's shift, Mason came in to relieve her, and a couple minutes after that, only six minutes late today, Natalie Whitmore came in too. Michelle mentioned the idea of a holiday party at Noble Oaks to them. I'm on board, Mason said, with no hesitation. Depends on the day, Natalie said, passionlessly. I might have something going on. Well, I thought we could have a little, you know, holiday thing right around the time Connie goes home, with a drink or two, some food, a taco bar or something. Why tacos? Natalie asked, looking puzzled. Because I don't cook very well, but what I do make is tacos. You'd cook? Mason said. That seems like a lot of trouble to put you through. Michelle didn't answer. She had kept mulling over the concept of a low-key work Christmas party until she became practically fixated on the idea. She'd even spoken to Connie Bice and gotten a not-entirely-sour I don't care what the rest of you do for a holiday mixer, as long as I don't have to pay for it. Coming from the permafrown queen, that was practically an enthusiastic endorsement. It's not a big deal, she said finally. Well, when are you doing it? Natalie asked. Maybe I'm already working that night anyway. I was thinking the 22nd or the 23rd. Maybe started at 5? Sounds good, Mason said not bothering to check the schedule to see if he would be working that night. He went into the break room to hang up his coat and charge his phone. Natalie took a bit more convincing. And what are we going to do? Exchange gifts? I hadn't considered that, Michelle said. She had wanted a warm fire and semi-warm companionship, maybe some music, maybe a cup of nauseating eggnog, which she loathed and yet always took when it was offered her, and a chance to feel like part of a community. We'd just play a couple of songs, take a picture for the wall, and be out of here by 7 or 7.30, Michelle added. Well, if I start at 7 that night anyway, I can come in a little early, sure, Natalie said. I can buy some chips and salsa, maybe some buñuelos. They like Mexican donuts for the holidays. You like buñuelos? asked Alona, the housekeeper with the piercings from across the lobby. She had super hearing, apparently. A mí me encantan. Michelle was pretty sure that meant she really liked them. Those are like chips with cinnamon on them, right? Michelle asked, imagining sweet-tasting nachos. That's right. She turned to the Mexican girl. We're going to have a Christmas party on the 22nd, she said, then repeated it in her excellent Spanish. Alona chattered something Michelle couldn't make out, but by her tone, she was excited to come. And what we are doing? She asked Michelle. The day clerk came close to mentioning kissing under the mistletoe, but kept that to herself. I haven't decided yet. We should tell him the stories of ghosts, exclaimed Alona. Just then, Mason came out of the break room and actually froze in place at the use of the G word. At the Noble Oaks bed and breakfast, that word was as forbidden as the F-word or a lesser racial slur, simply because Mrs. Bice would hit the roof if she heard someone talking about them. Most everyone knew the place was haunted, but they also knew not to advertise that fact. So there was still a small chance Alona hadn't been told yet. Uh, I don't know if that would be such a good... Michelle started to say. You know, that's a fun idea, Mason said. I was thinking about it just the other day. I was at Fat Ian's, and that song, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, started playing. And there's that bit that goes, There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories. And I thought, wait, what the F is that all about? Who tells scary stories at Christmas? Michelle knew the answer. Well, in Jane Austen's time, it was this big tradition to gather around a fire at Christmas and tell ghost stories. This is in England. I'm not sure it was a big deal here. The housekeeper girl chimed in that it was a big deal in her village in Guanajuato when she was a little girl. Mason thought Guanajuato was a hilarious word, drawing the ire of both Alona and Natalie, who wanted to be the U.S. ambassador to South America when she got old and no longer pretty. Michelle tried to be diplomatic. 
Well, that's a tradition that we don't really have over here. But sadly. We could bring it back, Natalie suggested. At least for one night. Good idea, Mason agreed. And of course he did. If Natalie Whitmore suggested they bring back square dancing, apple bobbing, or polio, he'd be the first on board. Well, I could try to organize it, Natalie suggested. But not the 29th, okay? Mason said. Why would you have a Christmas party on the 29th? Michelle asked. No worries, Natalie said. We'll do it before Christmas. What did you say? The night of the 22nd? Now Michelle had a concern. Does it have to be at night? Well, I don't think there's a law about it, but usually... Pe Mason started to say. Natalie interrupted him. Whoever heard of a party during the day? Of course it'll be at night. But not too late, Mason said, obviously looking out for whoever had the morning shift the next day. Like what, six? Ten, Natalie suggested. Maybe five-thirty even, said Michelle, ignoring night clerk Barbie. Somebody had to. Even better, Mason said. Natalie narrowed her eyes at Michelle, probably used to always getting her way around Mason. It made Michelle feel kind of nice. Should we invite Lolly? Natalie wondered aloud, emphasizing the name like it was also a forbidden word. Huh. Yet another person the hot chick didn't like for no reason. Not that Lolly was hard on the eyes or anything. Michelle said, Why would we not invite Lolly? She craned her neck to see what Alona thought of her, but the housekeeper had gone into the bathroom to refill the paper towels. Natalie took a step closer. Because she doesn't know about the you-know-whats. It's bound to come up. Oh, Michelle said, conceding her point. She almost never worked with Lolly, just Fridays and when she was training her. Well, she's got to find out sometime, Mason said. Imagine finding out the hard way. He fake shuddered, but with the stuff they had seen within these walls, a real shudder would have been no problem. Well, who else should we invite? Natalie asked, and tossed Mason a less than a second look that only Michelle picked up on. Oh, heaven forbid they be in some kind of social setting together, where Mason could breathe the same air as St. Natalie. Everybody, Mason said, without any thought. I'll take care of it, Natalie volunteered. Um, do they have to be scary, ghost stories? Michelle asked, almost in spite of herself. There had been really neat, inspiring, and romantic things that had happened under the Noble Oak's roof in the years she had worked there, and Christmas time seemed to be the optimal season for telling stories of warmth and hope. Or maybe she was just scared, scared that someone would tell a story too similar to her experience with the charred man, and she'd be too freaked out to keep working here. Again. Well, that's how the song goes, Mason said. But do we have to be beholden to the song? she asked. I, I mean, really? I went to school with a guy named Holden, Natalie remembered, out of the blue. He told me what all the dirty words meant. I'm happy for you, Michelle said, before she could control her tongue. But I'd rather people be able to tell whatever kind of experience or just made-up story they wanted to, even if it was about Grandma telling them how proud she is they were valedictorian or something. Wow, you were valedic- Mason started to ask, impressed. Didn't happen to me, she said, stopping him. He nodded. Okay, sure, any kind of ghost story, even the sexy grandma kind. Ew. Ew. Michelle and Natalie both said at the same time, which caused Mason to grin. Michelle found that pretty endearing, but surely Natalie was further grossed out by him. Youth and unblemished skin were wasted on the young. Okay, Mason said, giving a little. We can put a ban on certain fetishy stories, if you girls insist. They did, though Natalie did take a minute to tell Michelle about a certain guest who had come the year before, ran into a sexy female ghost, and came back on July 2nd to actually sleep with her. It sounded pretty dubious, but Michelle had heard crazier stories. And besides, Mason had told her a similar story one night when it was hailing outside and she hadn't wanted to drive home in it. Well, this all sounds great, maybe even exciting, Mason said, gesturing with his head to the hall past the reception desk. There's no way Bice is going to go for it. 
Fun is her kryptonite. Michelle wasn't so sure. They had done a secret Santa gift exchange the first Christmas she'd worked there, and while that had never been repeated, it set some kind of holiday precedent anyway. I agree with Mason, Natalie said, her runway posture wilting like an old flower. He blinked in surprise at that statement. There was a first time for everything. Uh, of course, Michelle may have better luck getting her permission. She's known her the longest. Can't hurt to try, Michelle Lovett said. Though with a boss like Constant Spice, it actually could. Right around the time they'd exchanged gifts, Mrs. Bice had fired the young man who plowed the snow in the parking lot when he'd asked for a dollar-an-hour raise, and he'd been her nephew or grandnephew. Even so, she was surprised to find her boss totally amenable to the idea. As long as you don't expect me to come, Bice said. Well, no, Michelle said standing by the reception desk, holding her coat, not yet daring to put it on to leave for home the next day. But of course you'd be welcome. That sounds lovely, really, Bice said, laying on the sarcasm. But you know I don't come in at night. Right. She didn't really consider 5.30 p.m. night, but she supposed, in December, it technically was. And someone has to be clocked in, manning the front desk, and listening for the phone at all times, Bice added. Do you understand? Oh, definitely. Either me or Lolly would be happy to, I'm sure. Either Lolly or I would, Bice corrected, just to be a dick about it. You make certain that's the case. She narrowed her eyes. And clean up after yourselves, for God's sakes. Of course. Michelle said. And no smoking, the old woman threw in. Well, that goes without saying, Michelle said, though Bice was just being petty now. Nobody ever smoked inside the building. Bice claimed she could smell it when guests in their upstairs rooms lit up a cigarette. We'll just eat some Mexican food, chat among ourselves, and call it a night. Right, Bice said. Nothing says Christmas time like Mexican food, Michelle. Michelle chose not to correct the pronunciation of her name, but she was tempted to, especially after that lolly or I BS. I'll save you a taco supreme, she joked. No, thank you, Bice said, her dentures clacking. It all gives me terrible heartburn. Mexican food was delicious and accomplished a valuable public service both. The day before the day before Christmas had been really, pardon the expression, dead at Noble Oaks, and Michelle had brought out all the chairs from the break room and set them in the lobby around the two couches in case everybody who worked there showed up for the party. Oh, it was not to be called a party, according to Bice, who preferred it be referred to as a gathering, lest someone think they were free to laugh and dance and speak above a hushed whisper. And she had hung a sprig of mistletoe, plastic, but who cared, on one of the archways toward the center of the lobby, just to see what would happen. Constance Bice had gone home even earlier than usual, at 4.30 instead of 5, and Michelle was pretty sure it was so there would be no confusion that she was deigning to attend the gathering herself. But Michelle chose to see the glass as half full, and turned on the loud-ish music a half-hour early, which convinced the cook to attend the party after all, since, it turned out, she had always had a thing for the god-awful hippopotamus song. After forty-five minutes, the group was all gathered, and it didn't look like anybody else was going to show. It was Michelle, Mason, Natalie, and Lolly, as well as Walther the handyman, Rosario the head of housekeeping, and Alona, the newest member of her team. Arturo, the janitor, was also there, as well as Colby V., who always brought in the breakfast orders, and today provided cupcakes. Michelle cleared her throat, but people were all chatting with one another, and it wasn't until she stood up and clapped her hands like a preschool teacher that the noise died down. Hey folks, I want to thank you for coming today, and I especially want to thank Colby V. and Natalie for the good food. There was some mild applause. 
Michel nodded patiently until it quieted down. Most of you know me. I'm Michel, which rhymes with seashell, I like to tell people. I'm the weekday day clerk, used to work here a few years ago, and am back now, and I guess I was one of the organizers of this little shindig. Get it this shindig, Alona muttered, and Natalie whispered, Party? Fiestita? Michelle didn't know why she did it, but she decided to liven things up a little. She said, I'm sure you're wondering why I gathered you all together tonight. And the truth is, I did it for a purpose. One of you, in this room, is a murderer. There was a gasp from Lolly, a little start from Rosario, and a scowl from Arturo the janitor. But Mason laughed aloud, and Colby V. started pointing her finger at various people sitting around the circle. Don't look at me, Walter said. Case got thrown out. The handyman was a middle-aged dude, skinny, with salt-and-pepper hair, maybe fifty, maybe close to seventy. He had a gravelly voice and a sour, acerbic personality, but there was a smile in his cobalt-blue eyes, and he always seemed to be on the mend from something, feeling better than he had been the day before, and that went a long way. Okay, that was just a little joke, Michelle admitted. I only wanted your attention. No, the point of this get-together was so that someone would kiss Lolly under the mistletoe, and so we could exchange a couple of ghost stories. You see, in olden times, people would gather at— Arturo, the janitor, raised his hand and interrupted. Wait, was this about Lolly and mistletoe? All eyes turned to the new clerk, who was becoming quite red. That, uh, was also one of her jokes, she said. True, true, Michelle lied. A bit sorry she had made that little comment. No, uh, in the past, people would gather during the Christmas season to tell ghost stories, and I thought, what better place than this to do it in? There was some laughter at that, but it sounded like nervous laughter. Lolly looked around in confusion, but didn't say anything. So, I don't know who would like to go first, but just raise your hand and... I'll pass you the invisible conch shell. Again, she was just making a joke, but nobody paid any attention to that one. The co-workers did not exactly knock each other over to be first. Walther looked at Colby V., Natalie looked at Rosario, and Mason looked at Natalie, but that was nothing new. The holiday playlist started on the next random song and it was the Mariah Carey one, which caused a surprising amount of groans until Lolly turned it off. Is eggnog the strongest drink in the house? asked Arturo. Actually, somebody left a bottle of champagne in the break room fridge, Michelle said, holding up an unopened green bottle. Thank you, whoever you are. Rajos, that's very generous, Rosario exclaimed. Well, they... Also left the price tag on it, Michelle said, so I'm not sure I'll go that far. She filled three or four glasses for those around her. Mason squinted. You don't think it was... A ghost? Natalie asked, scrunching up her little nose. Why would a ghost get us a bottle of champ... He made a you-win gesture. I was referring to Connie Bice, he said. Natalie laughed, a little too loud. A ghost is more believable. Michelle, who had her issues with their boss, same as anyone, decided to be contrary, just to spite Natalie Whitmore. Now, hey, she let us have this little get-together when she totally could have said no. I'll bet she did say no, and you just misunderstood, Natalie said, and it was clear she'd already drank something that made her think she was a comedian. A couple of the men laughed. Michelle opened her mouth to say something cutting, and Mason who seemed to be picking up on this, raised his empty glass. You know, even if she didn't buy the drinks, she gave us all a very nice gift tonight, by not showing up to this party. Pretty much everyone laughed, or saluted, or clinked their glasses together at that, and poor Lolly, the newest employee, said, Ah, uh, I wish she did come tonight. She's been here the longest. If anybody has some scary stories about this place, it's gotta be her. People had to agree with that. Good point, kid, Walther said. 
She did tell me about a guy who caught his beard on fire on the fireplace there. He pointed behind them, though the log behind the grate was just the electric kind nowadays. But she said he didn't get killed or nothing, just danced around a little. Michelle didn't think that story was worth commenting on, so she just gave the handyman a thumbs up and raised her glass in the air. A toast to the Noble Oaks bed and breakfast. Noble, noble, oaks. Oaks. noble oaks. Noble Oaks. Everyone said. But Colby V. gasped when she saw Lolly raising her empty glass. No, 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 she exclaimed. It's bad luck to toast with a glass with nothing in it. Well, I, I don't drink, Lolly said. She looked over at the sparklets machine and started to rise. I, I could get some water to... No, 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 Colby V. exclaimed again. That's even worse. Mason tried to think back. Shoot, I think I read somewhere that toasting with water used to be done like by the Greeks or Romans as a way to wish the dead a good voyage to the underworld, or something. Lolly sat back down, less than thrilled with that prospect. Man, you're a morbid sucker, Mason, Walther chuckled. But I like it. Why, well, I figured water'd be okay. In this instance. He took a quick swallow of his champagne, glanced at Natalie, who was examining the bottle, and tried to signal Michel to continue with the activity. He didn't have to. Colby V. decided she'd be first. Okay, here's a kind of spooky story, and every word of it is true, as you all know. She looked from person to person, took in a long breath, and began. Guess this was two years ago. Might have been three. I was bringing some hash browns and pancakes and eggs and sausage for the buffet. A certain July morning, when most of the rooms are full, you know, and was unloading the coolers in the kitchen for the guests. Say, you didn't bring any boiled eggs, did you? Somebody says. And I turn, and there's this girl, maybe twelve or thirteen, standing beside me in pioneer dress, like she'd just came back from a Fourth of July parade, which sometimes happens. I hadn't seen her come in, and the kitchen's for employees only, but I didn't mention that. Just said, as a matter of fact, I have a whole dozen I boiled last night. I pointed to the carton on the table. I like to keep them back in the carton after they're cooked, and said, help yourself. Oh, not for me she says, for them. And she points to the window, and there's three or four faces looking in the kitchen glass. They're Indians, or Native Americans now, I guess, also in their official outfits, all of them real skinny and sad-looking. I didn't have to look hard to know they weren't from around here, or rather, they were from around here, just not this century. Probably not the last, neither. That's okay. Come on in, the girl says, and she signals with her hand. And then, there they were, four of them, standing right there, close enough to touch, looking at the carton in front of me. And now, it's way easier to see that they're dead. Two of them have skin that's practically gray, and one is so skinny I bet a thousand bucks she starved to death. And one has a bullet wound right here on her neck. The cook pointed to a place right below the carotid artery. Now, I could tell they didn't mean me any harm. But that didn't mean I was thrilled to be face to face with a half dozen ghosts. So I set the egg carton on the edge of the table and said, Help yourselves. And I took a few steps away. How they were going to eat the eggs was a mystery. But they opened up the carton and started cracking shells then and there like they'd been born to it. The girl who had, you know, invited them in, stood by and watched with me, just as amazed as I was. How she knew about them I didn't guess, but a haunting's a haunting. I muttered, That was nice of you. And the girl says, Seemed the least I could do. And then she turned and showed me her back. There was something buried halfway in it, caked with dirt and dried blood. It was a tomahawk. 
Oh, I whispered. I see. And the girl ghost looks at me and says, You don't have any poached ones, do you, ma'am? Colby V. smiled then and gave a little bow. Everyone was generous with applause. Creepy, Lolly muttered. Did you just... What, kiddo? Colby V. asked. Did you make that up or, or see it on a show somewhere? The cook just blinked at her. See what on the show? I, I... Oh, Mason said aloud, and a couple of heads turned his way. He seemed embarrassed to have drawn the attention away from Colby V, even though she was done. Sorry, guys. Let's keep this light, he said, rather awkwardly. You know, stories that may or may not be true. Alona shook her head. No, it's better if you say they are true, all of them. She really struggled with the words not in her native tongue, but made her point. Right, Mason said, obviously uncomfortable. I, I, I don't get it, Lolly said, drawing the attention back. She doesn't know, Michelle said softly. She had been aware of that fact but it was pretty clear the others weren't. ¿Qué dijo? Alona asked Natalie, which Michelle knew meant, what did she say? Lolly, you didn't hear? The handyman said, scratching the bald spot on his head. This place, the bed and breakfast, is haunted. Like, way haunted. Lolly chuckled, but her laugh died away as she saw the sober expressions on the other employees' faces. No, come on, guys. Her hands went into her lap and clutched each other tightly. Sorry to say, but it's true, Mason said, seeming embarrassed for the girl. I don't believe you, Lolly said, and she seemed hurt, like this had all been organized as a prank against her. It was actually more than a little bit heartbreaking. Michelle stood up again. She did it a little too quickly and the back of her legs knocked into her chair ridiculously loudly. The thing is, Lolly, we're all telling these stories as though they are true. I, I talked to everybody beforehand. I apologize for not getting the word to you. The girl's hands loosened a bit. Mason threw in his two cents. Right, uh, we had agreed that nobody was supposed to question the stories. We just go along with it as though it really happened. It's sort of a tradition from Europe. And at that, Lolly seemed mollified. Oh, okay, she said. Ask again, kiddo, Walther said, pointing the cook's way. And if Lolly was irritated by his condescension, she didn't show it. Did that really happen to you, Colby? She made her eyes go wide, like she was telling a campfire tale. Of course. Lot of spooky things happen in here, all the time, if you really look. And she grinned goofily. Okay, who wants to be next? Michelle asked. And immediately, Walther said, Mason does. I do? Chomping at the bit, man. Jeez. Oh, he said. Sorry about that. The bit, I mean. He shrugged and stood up, and it seemed clear he hadn't been particularly excited for his turn, despite his gregarious storytelling ability when it was just them standing behind the front desk. A true story, right? Rosario asked, and she seemed to be having a good time at least. Right, naturally. Mason took another moment before beginning his tale. You see some things here, when you work the night shift. I could tell you about the time when the naked senior citizen asked me to remind him which room he and his wife were staying in, or when the lady asked if any vibrators had been turned into the lost and found, or the time when Natalie's hair didn't quite look exactly perfect. He made his eyes go big. All true stories, mind you. Hey, let's not take it too far, kid, Walther said, and gave Natalie's head a fairly clinical glance. 
Some stories are harder to swallow than others. R right. Nat seemed bothered by that, and Michelle wondered if the way she felt, when people scrutinized her burned neck, cheek, and hand, was how Natalie felt when eyes moved over her, either as a model or a potential romantic partner. It would be super strange if it was. Michelle also observed Lolly scooch a bit closer to Alona on the couch, but the young housekeeper didn't seem to pick up on it. Or, if she did, was not particularly receptive. And that was worse. Lolly, you want to go next? She half whispered. I'm not sure I understand the rules yet. The scary story has to take place here? At the bed and breakfast? Well, it doesn't have to, Mason conceded. It's just that most of us have a story to tell. Or three, Colby V. added. Get on with it, Mason, Walter said. I've had to pee for ten minutes. No one's stopping you, Mason said. I'm good, Walter replied, which seemed to mean he was just stirring the pot. Mason cleared his throat and wiped his hands on the back of his pants, two nervous gestures that made Michelle a bit anxious herself. There was uh, this little old guy with a funny voice uh, that I met in March or April. Uh, he came in on a Thursday afternoon, asked for a room. It might have been six, but it was on the main floor, whichever it was, and seemed sad for some reason. I, I didn't ask. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. On that night, I didn't. I never ask, Natalie muttered from her corner. Mason glanced at the nearest window, but all was blackness beyond it. It was a snowy night, or might have been that rain that's thick and, and splotchy and miserable. And the guy had had an umbrella, but... Sleet, right? They call that sleet? interrupted Arturo, the janitor. Yeah, that, that, that's the word, sure, Mason said. So I, I see, you know, after the old guy has headed on up to his room, that he's left his umbrella on, on the counter there. I figured it was his because it left a puddle under it that I knew Connie would pitch a fit about if I didn't clean it up. He paused for effect. So I didn't clean it up. But I grabbed the umbrella and went after the old man. Uh-oh. You left the desk, Lolly said. And she'd obviously gotten that traditional tongue lashing about how vital it was that there always be someone at the reception desk, no matter how empty the lobby or how full your bladder. Yep, and a mess on the desk, too. He was a ghost, wasn't he? Guessed Colby V. The old man? Well, uh, no. I, I, I made it upstairs just as he was going into his room. I think it was number six, because... Uh, it was on this side, he gestured. I caught his attention before he could close the door in my face and told him I had his umbrella. He took it and was pretty grateful, but explained that he was all turned around because it was his anniversary and he missed his wife. Mason took in the faces of the other employees, not just Natalie's this time. Now, I, I get that. A lot of folks come here because they had good times years ago, or it reminds them of a honeymoon or a, a vacation or a booty call with somebody that's not in their life anymore. But at the same time, I don't want to hear all the details. It, it's kind of like being a bartender, I suppose, more or less. But the, but the old guy, I think he said his name was Rupert, but that doesn't make sense. Who knows a Rupert? The Harry Potter kids named Rupert supplied Michelle. Okay, but he's English and a wizard, so that explains that, Mason said. Anyway, Rupert tells me that uh, he and his wife came here a few times over the years, and uh, she's dead, and he misses her. And it was this very room they stayed in the last time. He gets a little bit misty-eyed. Not outright crying, but enough, so I think I ought to get out of there. He wrinkled up his nose, this time looking at Lolly. But at the same time, you don't want to leave them when they're sad and vulnerable. We've had a few people come in and not check out, if you know what I mean. So I tell him to focus on the good times, and maybe, if he's really quiet, 
he'll feel her presence in the room. Much stranger things have happened, right? And he seems to appreciate this. So I tell him, my name is Mason, and if he needs anything, to just dial one on his phone, and I'll be there all night. And then I leave, though I do give him an extra long look before I go, trying to sense if he's feeling suicidal or not. Can you tell something like that? Lolly asked, making mental notes. Really tell? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes. I Just this July, there was this unpleasant guest who checked in. He called me a douche, wouldn't tip, called Natalie a piece of tail or something, and he killed himself in the bathroom that same night. Wait, he called me a piece of tail? Natalie asked, all offended. No, no, he called me that. Maybe you were the douche, Mason said. And that might have been a joke, or it might have been the unvarnished truth. Mason had told Michelle the whole story one time in between their shifts. He had found the body, his eyes wide and bulging, in the bathtub. So who knew what was going on in a person's mind, mere hours before the paramedic zipped him into a black bag? Anyway, I got sad vibes from the guy said Mason, seeming to now regret his pick of this particular story. It wasn't one Michelle had heard before, but working here, it couldn't help but sound familiar. Natalie started to explain vibes for Alona, but she already knew. Guess that was a young person word. Mason went on, but not whatever would be a red flag. Despair, maybe. This is just... You know, two rungs on the ladder above that, maybe melancholy, not quite depression. And I leave, but I do say a little prayer for the guy, like I do whenever I wake up, before I put on my makeup. Mason winked. Michelle, anyway, appreciated the reference. And I come back down to the lobby, which is not empty for once. Yep, I left my post, and now there's somebody standing at the front desk. And it's an older woman, sort of heavy-set, but not fat, but pleasantly plump, maybe they'd say in a book. And she's got her back to me, because she's cleaning up the water on the desk with a handkerchief. Doing your job for you, Walther murmured, and found this funnier than the rest of them did. She was, yeah. And I didn't want to startle her. So I just stood there and waited for her to finish. And she seemed to sense that I was standing there. So she turns and smiles. And it's everybody's grandmother, you know? Everybody's grandmother? Rosario asked. Well, I, I, I guess I mean she had that quality that your grandma has and, and, and mine had. And she just fit the description of the perfect grandmother. He shrugged. The platonic ideal of a grandmother, Michelle suggested. And this time, it was a reference Mason didn't get. Exactly, he said, anyway. She was warm and approachable, and she tells me, hello, in a soft, reassuring voice. Like everything's a bedtime story to her, and every meal she makes is cookies or gingerbread men. Soothing. Not at all scary. Michelle noticed movement on the couch and saw Alona's hand inch nearer to Lolly's, not quite touching, but so close it was inevitable. Mason continued with his story. He's in room six, I say, even though it's not July, so it didn't make any sense. And she says, thank you very much. Do I need a key? And I figure, no, a, a ghost probably doesn't need a key but I go around the counter to get the spare for her anyway. I figure maybe it's a nicer surprise if she just goes in there and surprises him that way. And I get the key, I turn around, and she's gone. Not there in the lobby anymore. She wasn't the type to sprint toward the stairs or cross to the elevator in five seconds, but she's still gone. All that's left is the handkerchief she had used to clean up the rain from the umbrella folded up nicely. Mason nodded. That was it for his story, apparently. Wait, 
you don't know she was a ghost, right? Colby V asked. Well, no, I, I, I don't know it, but you know, the evidence. She might have just been somebody else's wife or grandmother, and you gave her the key to the wrong room, and she walked in on a stranger, and somebody got caught with their pants down because you jumped to conclusions. If he did, that's actually a better story, Walter said. No, you're right, Mason agreed. I, I don't know that she was a ghost, on this occasion anyway. But I didn't get any complaints, and I, I never saw her or her husband come down again, so I just assumed everything went the way it was supposed to. Not sure you stuck the land in there, Mason, Colby V said. Uh, sorry, I, I, I was just... No, it, it's fine. It was a nice story for once. A little better than murdered pioneer girls. A little better, Arturo agreed. Arturo the janitor said he'd wait for later, and Alona said the same, which meant it was Natalie's turn. Okay, Natalie said, and stood up to tell her tale. She didn't seem in the least uncomfortable to have all eyes on her. As you know, I work the night shift every other night. The graveyard shift, you mean? Walther asked and snickered. <laughs> Michel was about to yell at him, but he seemed to wilt when nobody laughed at his comment, so she looked down at her feet instead. Natalie, only mildly irritated, continued. And sometimes working by myself all night long can be pretty lo- She stopped herself and said, Pretty spooky. So I try to do stuff to keep busy, and one of the things I taught myself to do was fix the printer. I've always had a way with printers. I seem to just know what's wrong with them, and we've got three here, counting the one in Bice's office, so I'm literally always getting called over to fix one of them. Lots of times it's just a piece of paper that's jammed in there, and nobody else was smart enough to dig it out, but, well... Anyway, she did this thing with her hair so that it flew from one side of her head to the other, like somebody cracking their neck, only a whole lot prettier. Michel considered asking Mason if he needed to lie down for a moment. Natalie took a sip from her glass and went on with her story. This happened not very long ago. Like the first or second week of November, before Thanksgiving. So it's like... Three in the morning, and I went over to the water cooler to put out some more cups, and back there at the desk... She gestured with her chin to the reception desk. I hear this weird sound. It's coming from the printer, and I walk over there to figure out what's going on. It's this raspy, fingernails-on-a-chalkboard sound. Like somebody's filled the printer with metal shavings or something. But it could just be a paper jam, I guess. So I reach for the printer and the lights above me sort of flicker, like when you plug in a hairdryer in your apartment, and then something starts coming out of the front of the printer. It's a piece of paper, sure, but it's all red. It's got blood on it. And, stupid me, I, I think, oh crap, a, a mouse got caught in the printer, and this is what's coming out. She made a, what are you going to do face, all self-aware. I know, but that's what I thought. But then, more blood starts coming out, but no paper. And there's no way that much blood is in one little mouse. How much blood are we talking about? Arturo asked. I don't know. Like, a milk carton's worth, Natalie said. A quart or a liter or something. The janitor nodded, placated. A lot to mop up. Tell me about it, said Natalie. And well, I've worked here long enough to know this stuff happens. Not all the time, but like, literally all the time. And the only thing I can think of to do is to unplug the printer. And when I do, the lights on it go off. But the sound doesn't. That gritty, ugly noise is still happening, but it's not coming from the printer anymore. 
Natalie pointed to the reception desk again, and everybody but Mason craned their necks to look over there. I'm standing in, in front of the reservation computer, and I look over towards the hall, like where Mrs. Bice's office is, and the sound is coming from there. I take a couple of steps over, and there's a man on the floor, in the little hall there, by the bookshelves. Something was sticking out of his back. Right here, she said, reaching half around herself to touch where her shoulder blade ended. I thought it was a knife. Maybe a, a screwdriver. She looked over at Colby V. Not a tommyhawk. The cook nodded. I was frozen, Natalie said. I don't know how long I stood there. Maybe it was just a second or two. Maybe it was half a minute. But the man crawled another foot or so, the thing sticking up out of his back, and then he stopped, made eye contact with me, and opened his mouth as if to say something. Natalie wiped her hands on her pants then, as though trying to get something off them. Or maybe they were just sweaty. But instead of words... This bubble of blood came out of his mouth, popping with a way too loud noise. And that sort of snapped me out of my trance. And I literally ran all the way around the desk and over to where the man was lying. She let out a little laugh, more of a tension reliever than due to any humor. And there was nobody there. And no blood, either. I looked around, like... Maybe he had got up and went somewhere else in the two seconds it took me to get where he'd been, but there was nobody around. On the carpet, right beneath the big clock, was a wooden block with a long nail on it. I, I don't know what they're called, but they used to use them in the olden days to keep papers on. Sort of a skewer-type thing. Natalie shrugged. That was what had been sticking in the crawling man's back. She looked around to gauge people's reactions stopping on Mason, who gave her a supportive nod. Natalie finished her story. I didn't know if I should call the police, or what, since it had obviously been a ghost I'd seen. But I bent to pick up the nailboard thing, and my hand went right through it. It wasn't even there. She sighed and did that hand-wiping thing again on the side of her slacks. I nearly went home after that. But instead, I went back to the desk and got on my phone, looking on the internet for clues as to what I saw. Turned out, there had been a man murdered here in the lobby on that same night in November, ten years ago. He hadn't even been a guest here, just a guy who stopped in to meet somebody, according to the statesman and somehow got killed. This'll come as no surprise. But the picture in the article matched the man I saw, and though the paper didn't say what he was killed with, it just said he got stabbed. I knew. She turned to look at Michelle. Were you working here, then? Nope, before my time. The old head of housekeeping had been here for years, though. And she mentioned that dead guy in the lobby to me. Said the overnight clerk had gone to the video store or something, and there was nobody here to help the guy when he was bleeding out on the floor. They all processed that for a moment, until Lolly said, Noble Oaks had a video store ten years ago? Once. Every town did. Colby V. said with such quiet solemnity that almost everyone laughed just to release their own tension. No, the guy was still here, the new head housekeeper said quietly. Night clerk, I mean. He was just outside, having a smoke. You were working here then? Mason asked. Not yet, Rosario said. But when I was hired, there were ladies in housekeeping that were. Turnover's pretty quick at the Noble Oaks. Several nods all around, though not yet from Lolly. Good story, Natalie, Michelle said. Did you ever see him again? Nope. I think it was a special thing. 
on account of it being the anniversary of his murder. Did they catch the guy who did it? Mason asked. I don't know. I never looked into it, she admitted. Just that night. He grimaced at that answer, as though that ruined the story somehow. If that was what he was thinking, Michel tended to agree with him. All right, guys. Rich Outfield here. And you know what that must mean. Sorry. That's where we're going to have to quit for today. This story has more than doubled in length since I started recording it in November. <sighs> you know, it, it's just too long. It probably should be two stories. Like one, the, that's one Christmas story, and then a sequel to it where there are more stories told. There's just too many characters. And as I was going along, I thought, oh, shoot, every single one should tell a story. But even if every single one tells a story that's only a page long, there's still like eight characters, right? And so it's long. And as I've been recording it, as it gets closer and closer to Christmas, I've been thinking, well, maybe this should be the final Dead and Breakfast story. I mean, it certainly was the last one that I wrote. And since I've written so much on it, you know, this month, it feels like I've written a whole new Dead and Breakfast story, but it's not really. It's just little vignettes. It's little experiences that each character has had, except for one. I'll leave it till next week for you to know which one hasn't got a story. But it's not Christmassy. The, the Christmasness of it is obligatory. And um, it was a mistake for me to choose it for my Christmas episode this year. And it's a double sin because now it's going to be two episodes. But as I uh, said originally in the episode that I did for this story before I split it in two, there are all sorts of different ghost stories you can tell. You can tell a funny ghost story. You can tell a sad ghost story. You can tell a sexy ghost story. You can tell like a head scratcher where you're not really sure if it was a ghost or not. You can tell a story with tragic ghosts. You can tell a story with vengeful ghosts. You can tell a story that's actually hopeful, that reassures the listener that life continues past the coroner's office. And um, that's kind of what I was trying to do with this, is have everybody have a story that's a little bit different, but I can't help because A, they all take place in the same place, and two, it's me that's writing them. I can't help but have some of the stories be a little bit samey. Sorry about that. Uh, I tried not to, but, but it's inevitable. Different stories present different challenges, and this one was challenging in two ways. One, because I wanted the stories to not be exactly the same, although, boy, they sure seem similar. And two, because there's so many characters, a lot of whom we've never met before or have never had a character before other than just a name. And so I've been developing them as I go. A couple of these characters were just paper thin. They still are, but it's a hard cardstock paper now. So I'm going to quit right here because I've got plenty of work to do if I'm going to get out another episode before Christmas. So uh, thank you for listening. Before you know it, we'll have the rest of this story. And I promise you that there will be scary ghost stories. No, I, I can't pull that off. I, I promise you that there will be ghost stories. Your mileage may vary. Good night. And that's it for The Rish Outcast, which is produced under a Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution No Derivatives License, which means Rish owns it, unless he stole it, and it's free of charge, 
unless you paid for it, and Rish has been lying all this time. <laughs> the music in the show was by Kevin MacLeod of Vino uh, actually, that was me too. What? It, it was just me whistling, and then I played with it a little. Cool, huh? No, it was not cool. It was from Incompetech.com. No, no, seriously. Also under a Creative Commons. I, I usually use Kevin MacLeod's music because it's under a Creative Commons, Commons non-commercial, non-commercial 3.0, 3.0 license. license. Yeah, but not this time. This, this time it was by me. How dare you? Honestly, it was me. You, sir, are a liar and a scoundrel. And this podcast is over. Well, I, I agree with you there. So who knew what was going on in a person's mind mere hours before the paramedics zip him into a black bag? Wait, that's it? Okay, so I just wrote a whole story for poor Mason, and I'm sure there will be many mistakes. And it's past noon. God, I'm sorry. Okay. But then I got sick, and uh, I was unwilling to record the actual story part when my voice was really strained and uh, you could hear it. You could hear the sinus closure. (laughs) You could hear that I was not tip top in my voice. And so I thought, well, I just have to do one super long episode right before Christmas, hoping that my voice had recovered. Okay. uh, This is still, there'll be scary ghost stories. Uh, This story has doubled in length since I started recording it. Is that good or bad? Bad. Bad. Okay.